I knew as a 12 year old that I was not fit for that kind of decision making. <laughs> and that's the moment I knew I wasn't to have children. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing to know. Intro music, intro music, la, 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 intro music. Da, 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 da. This is a podcast of two friends who watch way too much TV. We learn from shows and at the same time we make fun of them. We're not experts, but we do pretend to be. After all, we watch a lot of TV. Today's show contains discussions about fictitious depictions of real people. We do not mean to belittle what they've been through, nor would we like to be sued by the House of Windsor. We mean no serious disrespect to your majesty and your royal highnesses. Also, there may be spoilers for The Crown season one and season two, so just be aware of that if you haven't watched The Crown season one. I don't know what you've done with your life, but it's not the right things. Go back and watch it immediately. Post haste. Hello and welcome to I Watch A Lot Of, the show where we impart our vast knowledge onto you because after all, we watch a lot of TV. That's Chelsea Hackman. That's Lisa Stats. And this is I Watch A Lot Of, and we are talking about The Crown. But before we get there, what are you watching a lot of? Oh, I just started Killing Eve. Tell me everything about it. Tell me. I loved that show so much. I'm watching it 100% because Sandra O's in it. And I'm also loving it 100% because Sandra O's in it. Yes, she's great. That's helping me out. I love the, um, when it changes scenes and changes locations, it does like the full screen font type over, which is great. Like all Mindhunter style where it's like, boom, London. And I'm like, yes. I love that. That's uh, no more of those little, like, as if they're subtitles. London. No, London. So the font is making me very happy. I really liked, so far, the depiction of a just absolutely psychopathic killer is lovely. The discussion about motive and how that figures in is great because it's like, well, uh, spoiler alert, they're, they're searching for an assassin who is a woman that is just seems to like to kill people and or generally mess with people and cause them distress, which is pretty characteristic of sociopaths. So um, she's not just like interested in murder and mayhem and she's not so full of rage. She does that thing that they did really well in Hannibal where she does things just to sort of see what will happen. So she likes to watch what happens when she does a thing to their body, or she likes to watch what happens when she does something to someone emotionally. She likes to sort of draw people in and then mess with them and then watch what occurs, which is very like cat and mouse classic sociopath. I love that presentation. She also is sort of this weird mix between the woman from the Queen's Gambit and Moriarty from Sherlock, which just like diabolical and violent and murderous and also kind of just really hyper focused on what her prey is doing which I really love so having a great time Sandra Oh is great Uh, I've heard great things about it we're just still in season one so I'm super excited to continue on in it I think we've only watched two episodes three episodes I don't know man we watch and then we just say yes keep watching so who knows What are you watching a lot of? Well, I was going to talk a little bit about the amazingness, which was Killing Eve. Oh, I watched do. Killing Eve as well. I swear to God, if you spoil it right now, I'm going to hurt you. No, I was going to say I loved Villanelle's fashion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Whatever the weird giant pink frilly thing was, yeah. I was both appalled 
and delighted by it. So, I mean, it's fantastic. Yes. I loved, I loved the clothes. I loved her. She, she's just a really fun character and I love how they write for her. I agree. I agree. It's been fun so far. There's also some pretty clever, I think it's going to be a fun exercise in like, how can we write clever ways to kill people? That is always fun when writers do that because they're obviously not contract killers. So they're working from a pool of less knowledge, but it's fun to see where their imaginations go being that they're not contract killers. So yes, that's fun. In most cases, I guess, I don't know. I guess I could be making some assumptions about the writers of Killing Eve that are not as appropriate. I don't, they might be contract <laughs> killers. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, maybe anything is what possible. A perfect, what a perfect cover. <laughs> but what are you watching a lot of? My sister got me, has gotten me recently hooked on the Mayans MC. It's on FX. It follows the Mayan Motorcycle Club. It's a spinoff of Sons of Anarchy. And they have just been signed on to their fourth season. And I'm really enjoying watching on Hulu. Weren't you like a ride or die bitch for the Sons of Anarchy? I was. I seriously was. That's what I thought. I was Sam Crow all the way. Um, <laughs> I really got sucked into that show and the cast of characters that followed. Um, even with like watching the Mayans, like there are a couple of characters from the show that have made an appearance and I get super excited because I'm like ah I remember when you did this terrible thing it was great so there's still some some crossover cast from Sons of Anarchy into the Mayans mm-hmm. that was that one that uh Kate Seagal was in right yeah she was yeah. actually in the first episode I love that for her she has grown so much and I love that whole role for her I remember seeing her on I think it was like an awards show or something where there was there was some talk of Sons of Anarchy and when she walked up she was like literally one of the best jobs I've ever had love this show love this cast love the writing um, well her husband's that, the writer I well then she better love the writing right <laughs> but like to say that there's yeah to say to have a job where you're just like this is my dream job good for her it's also a really great cast of characters like Edward James almost isn't it hello he's amazing and like riveting on screen is he I, I'm trying who what else has he been in like oh my god Edward James almost like everything like I could go list it but it would probably just be easy to google girl I uh, hold on one second allow me to dojulet baby dojulet oh dang Miami Vice mm-hmm. oh well, he was in Miami Vice. Okay, yes, I got you. I got it. Yes, he has that very like rough and ready old guy look about him. He does. But I, I enjoy that for sure. So I'm really enjoying the show. Just started season two. So I imagine there's a whole bunch of more shenanigans that will ensue. But if y'all like motorcycles and you're a fan of like great writing and great storytelling, I would give the Mayans a check out. Oh, hang on. I'm just, and now I'm all deep in the, rabbit hole of edward james almost Uh, (laughs) so did you first find him in selena or like where did you i fell in love with him during like selena but like my father like we watched a lot of edward james almost movies um when i was a kid just because there aren't too many um mexican-american actors yeah absolutely so i know that he was now that I'm looking at his picture, it takes, I'm just visual. I'm so sorry. So 
now that I'm looking at his picture, he was also in the new Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. And he did rad stuff there as the Admiral William. Uh, and then he also did uh, William Adama. And then he also was in Blade Runner ages ago, which I'm trying to remember, but he played Gaff. And now that I'm looking at this picture, I'm like, of course he did. Okay, yes, I'm with you on this. Edward James Olmos is incredible. And I'm so sorry I didn't know who that was. But now you do. Yeah. And if anybody, if anyone listening to this does not know how amazing he is, give it, give him a Google. Yeah, and then take a give him a jujal, jujal him, and then Jujule, take, baby. A, take a gander through his IMDb list and watch some of the things in it. So I don't know about you, but some of my favorite things to do is like find a star I really like or find an actor I really enjoy, and then go wander through their IMDb and see what's available on streaming, and go and mm-hmm. grab those things and watch them. Yeah, I I love doing that as well. This is what I did with, uh, I think it was Jeremy Renner. And that's how I found Arrival, which was an amazing film. And it's- Yes, yes, Renner Arrival an, was an amazing film. Amy Adams. And yes. just, uh, I mean, just an incredible cast of people. And the movie was such a cool way to do a, an alien story. So- It was. It was such an interesting uh, like way to address Warp's law that it was very cool. I don't know if they call it a law theory or hypothesis. I suppose it's important to know, but the Warp law theory or hypothesis is that the way that we perceive language, it creates the way that we perceive reality. So it's not the other way around where the way that we perceive reality dictates how we perceive language, but rather we can change the way that we interact with reality by changing the way we interact with language which is incredibly cool i stumbled upon this movie at like 2 a.m when i couldn't sleep and i got i was sucked in it was completely immersive i i i could not get over how well written it was and how beautiful the story actually was yeah i recommended it to my grandmother who is like classically not into sci-fi and I just cannot wait to hear what she thought yeah it because it's it's not really it, it is sci-fi but it's it's so not right it's sci-fi by the like barest definition of sci-fi because I needed a framework to tell that story and that was the best framework that you could do for people who are more literal and it's great and it's wonderful and it was uh ideal so I if you haven't seen Arrival please go see it if you haven't watched Killing Eve Start it right now, and uh, you'll probably be a season behind me. <laughs> and if you haven't watched the Mayans, start now, and you'll for sure be done around the time that Lisa has finished it. Yes. She's a speed watcher. <laughs> she's, she's speed watcher. She hones it. She focuses in. Yeah. So we're here to talk about the crown. Let's talk about The Crown. Let's start with season one because I... Well, no, let's start with season two. It seems like way more. (laughs) Don't make fun of me. I'm not making fun of you. (laughs) Stop yelling. I'm not yelling. (laughs) All right. So this season was very, very cool because the the Crown changes their uh, cast every two seasons so far. We'll see if they continue. And this season was Claire Foy, Matt Smith, Vanessa Kirby, Eileen Atkins, Jeremy Northam, Victoria Hamilton, Ben Miles, Greg Weiss, Jared Harris, John Lithgow, who could forget him, Alex Jennings, Liz Williams, uh, Anton Lesser, and the inevitable, uh, inimitable Matthew Good. 
So this was actually based on a play um, written by showrunner Peter Morgan called The Audience. What? What? Who knew, right? I had no idea. I did know that he wrote The Queen. He did write The Queen. Was very, very cool. That was the, I think the second time. So Helen Mirren has played Queen Elizabeth, um, has played both Queen Elizabeths, Queens mm-hmm. Elizabeth. Uh, both of the Queens Elizabeth who were the main monarch because obviously Elizabeth II's mother was Queen Elizabeth, but not the queen, if you will. So yes. she's played them both and her family was fairly like anti-monarchist, anti-capitalist. And so she did talk in some interviews about how playing the queen in the queen made her feel but interesting so peter morgan wrote that movie which is also a very yes, good movie did. i watched it not too long a couple months ago it's very good uh it is really good it focuses on the the dealings with diana's death for the the was the, the two weeks after after diana dies yeah and how a- the royal family um carries on Right. It's a really good, like, sort of behind the scenes look of how the royal family may have been dealing with Diana's death. And that has actually some of the same cast um, from The Crown. Right. And the audience was a play that sort of surrounded the royal audience with the prime minister and the queen's relationship to her prime ministers and her meetings with those various ministers because she meets with the prime minister every Tuesday. Yep. Traditionally. It was an interesting time in British politics because of how, like, it almost seemed like a revolving door of prime ministers. Yes, there was a rapid fire. At least very, very early on in her um, her reign. Your reign is the right word. Yes, yeah, her reign. You are correct. There was a revolving door of prime ministers. I'm going to speak as an expert on British history, both from you are. my partial degree in history and also uh, the amount of British TV I've watched that there is a there's a sort of a way that a lot of British precedent and law is set on convention. And we do this too in the United States in political world. That's why politics, there's like some stuff that's not actually codified into law because we rely on convention and we shouldn't, but we do. And so when somebody comes in and say breaks all the political conventions, it makes everybody go, where's the legal precedent? And everyone's like, there really isn't one because we didn't think we ever had to say you can't own private businesses and be the president and have those private businesses benefit from you being the president. But alas, here we are. So in British government, there isn't as much of a, there's a reliance on convention. So there are some things about the prime ministership that's interesting because the first season deals with so many the first two seasons really deal with so many prime ministers in such a short amount of time. Cause each season's what, like 10 years yeah. approximately. There's a moment where she tells, I think it is the prime minister after Eden, after Anthony Eden, she's having a talk with him because he's resigning because of health issues. And she's like, basically none and of he's you. he's on a stretcher during his press conference. Yeah. He's like on a, in a hospital bed, all dressed <laughs> up and then gets rolled out to her in this like really ultra dramatic way and she's like you're being dramatic why are you being such a wimp and he's like i have a very very serious health condition she's like calm down and essentially she says some version of i've had a ton of prime ministers in a short amount of time and none of you have really lasted the course of your office so while that is true 
and they've never once like they they stayed the course a very short amount of time. The prime minister really holds office until the prime minister can no longer command the confidence of the house. Whatever party has the largest coalition or the largest number of seats in the house, that person tends to be the prime minister. So if that person changes during an election, then the prime minister changes. But otherwise, it doesn't really. And the, as long as that person still commands the confidence of the house, then they are still the prime minister. So like there's a bunch of prime ministers in England that have served for long periods of time and then a bunch that served like little tiny periods of time or tiny periods of time more than once. So we can't think of it the same way that we have like term limits on everything in our country because we want to make sure that that's not the way it happens here, likely in response to this particular system. So anyway, she has a bunch of prime ministers. Starts with Winston Churchill, who's played by John Lithgow. What did you think of John Lithgow as Winston Churchill? I'm a fan of John Lithgow and I'm pretty much on board with everything he does since like uh, Third Rock from the Sun. It's like, that's my bar. That's like, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's my bar. Uh, that's my litmus. Uh, seeing the need to reach that level of awesome, in my opinion. And there we go. So, oh, oh and, and apparently Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger was also, I'm being reminded, it was a John Lithgow situation. Oh, he was in Cliffhanger. <laughs> Harry and the Hendersons as well. I don't think I saw that movie. Oh, you never saw Harry and the Hendersons? I don't think so. <gasps> no. I, he's shame, Bigfoot. I am ashamed to admit. It's Bigfoot. Is he? No, oh. he's not Bigfoot, but like he lives with Bigfoot. Uh, is he one of the Hendersons? Yeah. Well, Lord, I don't know these things. Sometimes there's some, like there's an era of movies that missed me um entirely but i you didn't yeah. miss out you trust me you didn't really you really didn't miss out I'm henry so and the henderson's it's not a gem <laughs> you don't think harry and the henderson's is a gem i bet john lithgow values it as his most prized film the cornerstone to his acting career i feel like there's a place where john lithgow became a serious actor and i feel like that place was dexter yeah i really enjoyed him in dexter <laughs> i hate to say it but i think that like prior to dexter i was like oh john lithgow he's so funny and unreasonably tall he can't ever be a serious actor and then they put him in dexter and they were like oh wait a minute <laughs> as for churchill i think there's a really big shoes to step into especially at that time where Churchill was so revered. For sure. Post-war Churchill was a, a thing to be reckoned with, for sure. And I think he did a really good job of meeting those expectations of what Churchill would have been and his eccentricities and the way he was able to come in and command his space. I mean, that's the, those are all things that are in my opinion, like remarkable when an actor can do and like can come in and control a space just by being just their energy and just the controller they have over the character and the material. I think there's like two moments for me that really struck me about how they portrayed Churchill that made me appreciate the way that Peter Morgan, the showrunner, did this season. And that was one during the fog in season uh, episode four. Four, I believe it is yes when he reads the situation so poorly for the majority of the episode and then manages to sort of suck it out at the end and show up at the hospital and make it make the appearance of politicians care about everyday people 
even though for the majority of the episode, he was minimizing and downplaying the whole thing, that balance of he's really not doing the right thing and he managed to save himself and his party at the same time while also effectively running the government for a second was really poignant yes there is was a really intense episode that episode and the fog i didn't know about the details of that fog i had known that it existed simply because one like that's actually told taught in 20th century english history classes over here but not because it was such a way that like it seemed like government was not doing its prescribed role and then it did do its prescribed role and it immediately made funds available and changed the way that the English government thought about the environment and environmental rules and all of that. But there was another moment where he goes at her wedding when Elizabeth's getting married. So I believe it's in episode two, mm-hmm. one or two, where she's getting married and he comes into the church before she does right because all the guests are supposed to be there but he's the last guest to arrive on purpose and he knows what's about to happen and the church um the choir sings on purpose uh a ballad that is specifically aimed for him and then also he commands the presence of the entire crowd as he drives up the crowd as he comes into the church and everyone doesn't realize he's not the prime minister atley is Clement Attlee and he doesn't it doesn't matter that he's not the prime minister everyone treats him like he is which is uh just a way that I think as an actor trying to walk the shoes of somebody who had that kind of presence only John Lithgow could have done something like that I think he did an incredible job I agree with you there who was your favorite of the royal family who is my favorite of the royal family I'm gonna go with Margaret just because I think Margaret got a raw deal. She really did. She really, she really did. did. She got the rawest of raw deals, in my opinion, so we don't get sued. <laughs> well, I don't know, though. I also feel like, for me, I feel like the queen got the rawest deal because she had to be the queen. Oh, uh, well, yeah. I mean, that too, I suppose. <laughs> like, nothing steals your life like having to be a royal figurehead. Uh, <laughs> you had dreams? Sovereign. Too bad. <laughs> you are now sovereign yeah i don't know i would hate that like when we were okay so i'm gonna liken it to an experience that it is nothing like because i <laughs> am terrible please so, go ahead here we go so i was when i was in sixth grade uh in southern california we go and we spend the night on the star of india love it okay so um, we went and spent the night on the star of india and I think it's there's ghosts and it's fun. Anyway, you're like 12. I'd be so scared. It was fine. So we went, we spent the night. We did things that sailors did. We swabbed decks and such like. We ate a stew, which was delicious. They try and make it seem like you're going to eat garbage food, but it was actually fine. Um, I was ready for like sea biscuits, but they didn't do that to us, which was very sad for me because I was ready for like a real hardcore reenactment of history and it didn't happen uh to fight off my scurvy so (laughs) at the end of this adventure the captain or the man who plays the captain asked the group of us based on their experiences who wants to be the crew member or who wants to be a captain 
And I was the only person in my class of 35 who raised my hand for being a crew member. And he said, why? And I said, because as captain, you are one person who is now responsible for the lives of these other people, hundreds of them. And that's a lot of responsibility to bear. So yeah, you get a nicer bed, but also you have to make a lot of decisions. And like, I knew as a 12 year old that I was not fit for that kind of decision making. <laughs> and that's the moment I knew I wasn't to have children. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing to know. I mean, I'm sorry, we're in a storm and I have to make decisions. And I know some of my crew are going to die because of it. Oh, no, Mm-mm. no. Can't do it. I'm so sorry. So the I'm trying to imagine what it's like when someone tells you, by the way, you're now the queen of a country. And literally, they're going to both blame you for all their problems and not give you credit for any of your successes. You're welcome. And you also don't get to do any of the things you wanted to do with your life. And there will never be another reign like Queen Elizabeth's. From what you're seeing on how there's been like depictions of what that might be like for someone who perhaps is as shy as she was depicted in this show, I don't know that that comes with a lot of pride necessarily, but I don't know. I just feel like there's a, I just feel like she really also got a very raw deal where she was supposed to be allowed to be a upper class, like English countrywoman to do her own thing. And then her uncle abdicated and her whole future changed. Yep. Do you want to talk any bit, any bit about the abdication? Only in that I stopped tying the Windsor tie on my knot because I learned that Edward was the one who, David, sorry, was the one who popularized it. And I'll not tie my tie like a Nazi sympathizer. It's probably good. Um, I will say one thing. I was so jealous of like all of Wallace Simpson's outfits. <laughs> Everything Wallace Simpson wore, I was like, girl, yes. give me some of that. Bring give me some of here. that. Because like Wallace Simpson and uh Windsor, I mean, yes, they were Nazi <laughs> sympathizers. I mean, that's one thing. But like they I were also remember. impeccable dressers. And it was one of those like really sort of sparkly moments on the show for me to see like a fashion of that time at its very best all I, the cosplayer in me just wanted their like person who came and fitted them with costumes for their fancy dress parties i just yes, wanted one of those, those oh god those hats <laughs> I know. those beautiful where they were like king and queen of the sea sea inspired <laughs> hats of like marie antoinette would have been like oh i'm jealous those are that's the part that i was like can i please have whatever yeah. that is i want that can i whatever service you're you there, you person there who's fitting them with these incredible costumes. I want that service to come to me. But I not... want to talk about the fashion any about the show. I mean, the fashion in this show, I really the one I want to talk about is the blue dress that Elizabeth II wears in episode eight, where she goes to Ghana and dances with Nkrumah. Nkrumah? Mm-hmm. Nkrumah. So that whole episode. I thought was incredibly well put together because they attributed a very like slick political move to some personal motivations that the rest of us may not know about and may or may not exist, which I thought was really clever. And the dress that she wears, that blue dress that she wears in that episode, when she's going, I believe the, the, 
I can't remember what the royal designer's name is, but he's um, designer for the royal family. He's incredible. He says some version of, she may be the first lady, but remember, you're the queen and puts her in this blue dress that's gorgeous. Uh, and that dress is beautiful. And they did a really good job recreating it. And that whole exchange of dressing in order to feel empowered is a really interesting turning point for some of Elizabeth's character because she had a lot of doubts about herself as a young queen, it seemed like in this depiction. And there's a moment where Philip says, this stuff used to wear you and now you wear it. And I think that this moment really exemplifies that happening for her, where she starts to wear the monarchy as this protection and as a, as a source of empowerment. That's really cool. I want to know more about what you thought of different fashion looks and different fashion topics that were covered in season one or season two. Well, I do have a fun little tidbit. The costume, the coronation dress that uh, that uh, Claire Foy wore was a replication, uh, replica of the of the coronation dress that was commissioned by Harrods in 2012 for a window display for the Queen's Jubilee. Oh, oh, so oh, oh. the dress was never to be, and the dress was never uh, intended to be worn by anyone. Wow. And it felt Claire for like a glove. Incredible. So just like yeah. coincident, that's serendipitous that it like just fit yeah. her incredibly well. That's incredible. I didn't know that at all. Can we so talk about, just, yeah, go ahead. So just, just just a little little fun little fun facty poo. That's a really fun fact. I didn't know that at all. That's so cool. I love that there was like there was a lot of stuff that was made specifically for something like a royal tour or a royal progress or any of those sorts of things. Like this queen, Queen Elizabeth II, is the most well-traveled monarch in history. Mm-hmm. Um, I think last time I looked, and I can be corrected on this because I'm not entirely sure, I think she has been to 183 countries or 163 countries. Ooh, Brenda, help me. Um, I feel like she's been to at least 160 countries, but I can't remember if it's 163 or 183. And there are 191 countries currently in the world recognized, question mark. But she's been to most of them. Mm-hmm. physically and not just because they were once in the commonwealth but also because she goes on state visits and she does a lot of state activity so she's been to 110 countries i'm sorry so she's been to a fair number of the countries in the world um and she's done a huge number of world tours and she goes on state visits and she works really like a lot uh that's a lot of travel and travel is always like i don't love flying so the idea that I would fly even 110 times, let alone the fact that she's been to many of those countries multiple times, pfft, no thanks. If someone was like, hey, by the way, for this job, you're going to have to fly around the world all the time, I'd be like, <laughs> here's the thing, no. What was your favorite look from this, these seasons? Um, I'm going to go back to Wallace Simpson. All of her, like everything she wore was impeccable. Is it, it because ex- it was the thirties? 
Yeah, it was in the 30s. <laughs> totally. It's, it's, it's vintage, just a it's, hoe for the 30s. I'm just a hoe for vintage 30s apparel. Um, that's not a bad thing to be a hoe about. Honestly, get it. No one can uh, tell you what to like. <laughs> so definitely, I would say anything from that period is probably my favorite. But even, even some of the well-tailored suits that the king wore were also quite remarkably beautiful as well. That's true. Are you, when you say the king, you mean King George VI? Yes. I just saw that actor on an episode of SVU the other day, by the way. So I am dying because he was a serial killer who was in prison. And I was like, George VI, what are you doing in Rikers? I see, you know, I, I remember that actor from like <laughs> Mad Men and playing Moriarty. And I'm just like, you're so many things to me. It's so confusing. So he's great. I love him very much. And the fact that he was, he did an excellent job with George the Sixth, I feel like, because we opened this season on George the Sixth having a wet hacking cough. Uh, And when we get introduced to the notion that he has lung cancer. Were you, like, what's your take on the fact that nobody told him? Oh, what a great question. I love you for asking that question. Um, Here's the thing. The notion of, the notion of the king being able to pass away has a certain amount of taboo attached to it and the emotional process of what it is to know your mortality can be very difficult for people who are constantly bombarded with responsibility Mm -hmm. so I have the same process like Part of me says they should have told him because he has a right to know. As a patient, I have the right to know. So why wouldn't he? And I'm a little distressed by the notion in a very American way. I'm distressed by the notion that the king has less rights to his medical history than your average person. Mm -hmm. But then I also remember that he isn't an average person. He's the king. And so, of course, his rights are different. Right. He's the king. So there's a lot of things about his rights that are very different from the average person being the monarch. And one of those things that is different might be that he does not get to know all the things about his medical history if it means he has to confront his mortality. And that is emotionally very disturbing, but practically I get where the doctors came from. When he finally knows the sadness in him is really astounding. The way they portrayed his last Christmas was very heart-wrenching. Because he went to thinking that he was going to be fine and everything was going to be great. He was going to get back to work. And no, he's sick. He's really sick. He's not going to get any better. And he may only have a couple of good months left. Right. And Um, that's like, do what you can. Enjoy the part. Enjoy what you have left. And speaking of some, I mean, uh, lung cancer hit my family very close, like close and personal. Like that's. Is a terrible death. Yeah, it's really awful. And you see it too when he's coughing into his handkerchief in the morning and then he puts it in the box next to his bed and there's a whole bunch of them in there. Bloody handkerchiefs. And you're like, this is what he does every morning. He wakes up, coughs and coughs and coughs and coughs and spends the rest of the day smoking so his lungs are mostly numb and can't really react the way that they normally would. So at this point, it's too late. And that's really hard. Yeah. How was it for you when they didn't tell, um, when they couldn't get to Princess Elizabeth to tell her? My heart broke. Yeah. 
of all of the ways to find out that your parent has passed and in fear that everybody around you is afraid that like there's a good chance you're gonna find out from the wires and not from anybody in the family. Yeah. I mean, and that whole episode is really surreal um, because the queen king and queen don't sleep in the same same bedroom. I mean, she comes running down the hall. She, she didn't even know at first. Right, right. Nobody she was not knew. the first to know. The, the first person to know was his valet waking him up. Yeah. Right. And that's, that, that would have been a really- I don't know if it's his valet, but his servant. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely one of those things. It was really hard to watch a family sort of like run in and there's nothing to be done at that point. Everything's gone. Right. Say goodbye. Yeah. But that I understood that like rang very hit home for me. Yeah. I'll bet. I'll bet. There was the moment when Martin Charteris, who that actor is just incredible and I love him. Um, when he picks up the phone and just says they don't know and put down the phone and then he slams it down on the receiver and runs out the building grabbing his hat mm-hmm. that whole moment where he's like no they don't know is uh that moment like my stomach dropped like he has to race to try and get to princess elizabeth and what you see is he's invested in her experience of this moment personally yeah i think that's something that as an englishman he's like it's beyond just his duty as an Englishman or his job as her primary, her um, personal secretary or any of those things. It's like, it's, it's something deeper than that, that he's like, she needs to not hear this from the radio. Yeah. From the wireless, as they say. Nobody should hear that. No. (laughs) That way. No. And the fact that he finds Philip first and then Philip's the one who actually tells her is I think probably the best thing that could have happened. I agree with you. Uh, the fact that Philip was the one who got to deliver the news to her that her father had passed away is, I think, the one of the few times that she is, there's some sort of mercy for her versus the sort of relentlessness of being a monarch and being a head of state. Yeah. I mean, we talk about the, the toll that being the president of the United States takes on people. Um, you know, there's been lots and lots of things said about like George Bush from the time George W when he entered the presidency in 2001. And then by the time he left the presidency, how much gray hair he had. And there's talk about like looking at Obama from 2008 to when he left the presidency and you see just sort of the changes that it does. She's been a monarch for well over 60 years, 60. And we talk about the toll that eight years takes on these dudes when they take office and she's been a monarch of a country one of the major powers of the world for her entire adult life pretty much since she was what 25 yeah that's a lot it's it's there will never be anything like it again no 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 I think it's that she's it's I feel like it's 68 years right she's 93 now yeah so that's, I mean, that's incredible. And the amount of pressure and the amount of putting herself aside and the amount of duty is really intense. And I think this show in particular does a very good job, this season in particular, of showing what that's like to have to put herself aside so often. Mm-hmm. Um, and why the struggles with between she and Margaret are so pronounced because Margaret doesn't have to the same way, but does in a way sort of, and resents it even more than than Elizabeth does. What did you think 
of Matthew Good as Anthony. Tony, sorry. As Tony. Lord Snowden. It's a complicated situation because it was a marriage that probably should have never actually happened. Yeah, I think he was a little sociopath personally. But uh, yeah, and that's based entirely was... upon the depiction in this show and yes. not at all upon any of my personal knowledge, which there is none of Lord Snowden in person. I'm sure he's a charming chap. Um, he not be, I don't know. I don't, I mean, he was not depicted that way. So, no. from what, <laughs> so that being said, well, um, uh, if there was a take them or leave, if it was a take them or leave them, leave them sort of scale, I would definitely leave him. Um, <laughs> I think that Princess Margaret was trying so hard to find a piece of her own that she maybe overshot didn't. the mark. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. I'm trying to be polite. Whoops. <laughs> so this, I will say this is though uh due to the rights to the issues of the show could not use the real photographer like real photographs taken by anthony armstrong jones snowden so julian broad julian broad was asked to create images in the spirit of um armstrong jones's work oh and he was uh he used to be the assistant to armstrong jones mm-hmm. so for a little bit so that's interesting that they asked an artist who worked for armstrong jones to create his photos mm-hmm that's so fun. It's interesting that the way that they deal with art in this show and how that pertains to secrets. Mm-hmm. Like I also went and looked up a photograph of the work that was destroyed, uh, the painting done of Winston Churchill for his 80th birthday that was given to him by the Houses of Parliament mm-hmm. and done by the modernist, um, what is his name? Graham? I feel like his name is Graham. I can't think of it right now, but I know who you're talking about. That whole, the episode Assassins was very, very cool. I think it's a season one, episode eight. And they talk about art and painting and they try to relate to each other. And there's this whole process where they make a truce and they really start to understand each other. And then the the painter really sees Winston in a real true light and presents that truth for other people to see. And that infuriates Winston Churchill. And that painting was destroyed. So there, it's one of the, um, it's greatly regarded as, as one of the, the sort of great thefts of the world is that that destruction of that painting. It's really a shame um, because the painting itself, there's photos of it that still exist. So you can still see an image of it, but you can no longer see the original. And that's really sad, I think, for the rest of us because that is an important piece of that history. So the fact that they also deal with how Armstrong Jones's work is, and they talk a lot about how he uses his work as an excuse to sort of penetrate secret spaces, which I thought was creepy as fuck. I find it disturbing. I thought his discussion about like invading secret spaces and sort of penetrating those spaces was very... Predatory? Yes, in a word, predatory. And he recognized in Margaret this like desire to be a supplicant, which also struck me as very predatory. So I felt that he was overall portrayed as someone who preyed upon the perhaps insecurities of a member of the royal family in order to social climb. Mm -hmm. And then 
generally has disdain for his mother as a social climber, which I find ironic and wonderful that that's what they chose to do with his character and how they portrayed him. And my, it might be fairly true to fact, I don't know, but they do talk about and make sure to mention that his mother is like a hopeless social climber. And then he does sort of the worst thing one can do, which is marry someone he doesn't even particularly like. Um, and it has no plans of being nice to so that he can subdue her and uh, later abuse her. Yeah. Uh, which we find out more about in season three. And we'll talk about when we talk about seasons three and four. Mm-hmm. But season two is really interesting. The alluded to affairs that Prince Philip had. Oh, man. Because okay, they didn't so come out and say that he had an affair. No, they never they never can because that's alleging no. something that is uh, historically unproven. And yeah. also incredibly uh, disastrous as a character mm-hmm. situation. But the, the way that they manage... Okay, so when I rewatch season two, I watch basically three episodes i watched episode one and two and then i watch episode 10 because they're all focused on that (laughs) (laughs) episodes one and two are the ones where he goes on a royal tour for five Mm -hmm. months and just has a grand time but then evidence comes him and his boys yeah all the boys on the boat just boys (laughs) and they're like it's just men and you're like and then all the evidence comes back through the letter that gets <sighs> leaked from the lunch club do you not feel so bad for his friend's wife two things the parkers eileen parker is a brave bitch seriously 100 percent. the way that they portray this situation she's basically like i need a divorce and i kind of don't care who it hurts if i need to get it because my children deserve better and i'm like girl you're right because mike parker as portrayed in this show is a little bitch is a little garbage person a little garbage can of a man and i love that moment where margaret's like oh mike parker is an Australian. What do you make of him? And like, I think it's Elizabeth who's like, I don't think I make anything of him. It's Mike. What are you talking about? And she's like, yeah, but he's always arranging those sordid little affairs with all the so-and-sos. And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like Elizabeth's like, nah, nah, nah. And everyone else watching is like, yeah, Mike's bad news. I don't, I don't know why you haven't seen or been willing to look at this, but so I just think there's, I'm moving closer and closer to my camera as I talk about Mike Parker. Cause I'm like, girl, I hear you a girl. I hear you girl, girl. I hear you. What is going on? Your eye is so big. <laughs> <laughs> so like these things are lost on podcasts, but there's, <laughs> I, uh, uh, what do you think about the, uh, the portraits done by Stephen Ward? Oh, well, you know, <laughs> did he sit for them? Did Stephen Ward do them from photos? How do you uh, think? I want to know what you think about Phillips. When she confronts Philip in season 10, she, her, the Queen Elizabeth, when she confronts Philip in, in episode 10 of season two, and she's like, no, no, things are only one way sometimes. And there isn't another way to perceive them what did you think of that that whole fight if you had the ability to read between the lines that was an epic fight 
Honestly, the understated drama of this show yeah. is to amaze me. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the inner turmoil that some of these characters face is something of epic proportions. Okay, the moment when she pulls the drawer open at him, I'm like, I've never seen somebody open a drawer at someone with such ferocity. <laughs> and I think we've all sort of been there. And like in adult relationships, we've all gotten to that point where you, like you've just this nuanced fight between you and your significant other that only like somebody with that's been with somebody for that long can do the whole way that there was like the passive aggression involved in simply opening a drawer at someone and then walking away like she she opens the drawer and then takes a step away and like looks somewhere else so he can come look is just I was like that as a person who who has experienced a fair amount of passive aggression in my time that is amazing I was blown away so of the seasons one and two what was your least favorite episode my least favorite episode uh, or any of the ones dealing with um Charles being inadequate This is why we're friends. I was immediately going to say Pater Familius. That's episode nine of season two. And it is, uh, it's my least favorite episode because it's just an episode that is basically child abuse, the show. And I hate it. And the queen is trying to be gentle and give a shit about Charles's well-being. And also Philip has an entirely different way of wanting to raise Charles and completely throws him out of the things that he knows into an awful and harsh world that I don't think helped Charles not be an absolute dick. Uh, I don't think it helped Charles's sense of entitlement. I don't think it helped any of those things. I don't know Charles in real life. Obviously, we're not talking about the real Prince Charles because we don't know His Royal Highness Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales. But I heard that he like squirrels. This girl, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know anything about this man in real life. Come on. But this portrayal of Charles as this like sensitive sort of uh, internal boy who then gets just thrown into this rough and tumble Scottish Highlands cold and dank school, which... Reminds me of like when Americans talk about t- sending their children to reform school, which is like, I'm tired of beating the shit out of my son. I'd like someone else to beat the shit out of him for me. And it's really irritating. <laughs> it's just like, what? <laughs> why is that? Why is why violence- is this a thing? Why is this why- a thing that happens? Why is more violence the answer? Why don't we? More violence is always the answer. <laughs> what if we just listened to children from time to time? I don't know. What, what What's the fun in listening to children? Like, no. I know. I feel like I based on this portrayal, I feel like Dickie had the right, had the right tack, like shower him with affection, make him feel like he's paid attention to it, important and interesting. And, uh, you know, use some of your work and parenting skills that you don't have and like do your best, but no, nope. Take all those uniforms back. Here's a dirty old sweater. I'm going to fly you to that school my own damn self. Dickie Mountbatten is an interesting character. Okay, so I have so many thoughts about Dickie Mountbatten. Okay, go, Leah Mommy. Here's my general rule. 
before anyone forms any opinions about Mountbatten, because there's a lot of different ways he's portrayed by a lot of different people. There's a movie called The Viceroy's House that's about the giving India uh, the- Oh, when he lost when he lost India? Right, everyone's like, he gave up India and also got cuckolded by Nehru. And it's a description of all of the events that are, let me see, it's like, it's called Viceroy's House. It was made in 2017. I feel like there was like Indian filmmakers making it and the soundtrack was done by A.R. Rahman who did the soundtrack for Slumdog Millionaire. And it has Hugh Bonville in it who we love from Downton Abbey. Yes, we do. Um, it also has like a bunch of, it has some great Indian talent in it as well. Uh, Om Puri is in it or, and uh, Huma Kureshi is in it and Manish Dayal is in it. And so there's like a lot of really great talent in it. And um, Michael Gambon's in it as well, Gambon. And it stars obviously our lady of light, Gillian Anderson, mm-hmm. who plays um, Edwina Mountbatten. So there's a lot of really interesting things there. It changed my mind about how I had learned about that, that whole series of political events and how the whole like, British exit of India happened and how Muslim Indians versus Hindi Indians were treated and the way that that whole division came up and how much of it Mountbatten got blamed for versus how much may have been his fault, I think is really, really interesting and is very different from the very British narrative, which is that he gave up India and also his wife cheated on him and that's his fault because he's just a weak guy. Uh, I thought that that was all very interesting. So if you ever want to sort of change your views about Dickie Mountbatten, uh, that's a really fun movie to watch. I will definitely give that give that a watch. It sounds really good. Like watch Viceroy's House and then re-watch season two of The Crown. Because <laughs> 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 they're doing a lot there. Uh, they, they, I mean, the one thing they did sort of in the show is to definitely depict him as a social climber and with uh with his invested interest in in uh philip yeah i mean he really sank all of his eggs into that basket despite the fact that he also has his own family Mm -hmm. but he did do a lot of like the whole vying for mountbatten to be the royal family's name i don't know how true that is but i feel like that's something they wouldn't just make up entirely but i don't know yeah so there's some stuff there that, yeah, that that piece was really important. I like how much they address what's important in English politics and government through how the monarchy fits in constitutionally. Um, and I love that they they bring in Sir Walter Badgett. What's the episode where she's taking notes? It's, a, I think it's Scientia Potentia Est, the one where she gets tutoring. Yeah, um, I really liked, I really enjoyed that episode. I love that episode because there's a there's a line they take from Walter Badgett in 1867. And that's like, Walter Badgett wrote sort of the definitive work on the English constitution. I believe it's been called the English constitution. And that's what we read as well to read and understand how this Englishman and Englishman in general understood how their government works. So if anyone wants to brave through the English constitution, Sir Walter Badgett's book from 1867 is great. The constitution requires two sides, the dignified and the efficient. 
And then he explains the efficient being the government and the dignified being the monarchy. Um, and there's a secret to this system. And that secret is that those two powers work together and trust each other. And when they do not, the dignified has the ability to step in and control things about the efficient. So this sort of magic secret to the English government system is that when the prime minister is no longer doing the business of the government or the government is no longer working together to get the business of governing done, the queen can step in or the monarch can step in and say, the prime minister is now fired or Congress, or in this case, parliament, go home and you all have to be reelected. And now we need to hold new elections because the House of Commons needs to be redone. Uh, you're not working together and I've, you're no longer welcome to form this government in my name. You're not governing. Uh, and so there's this really interesting way uh, of doing this. So this is when she talks to Churchill after Churchill sort of maneuvers her and manhandles her a little bit. And then she's like, hold on, we need to be able to trust each other. And he's been lying to her about his health. Oh, yeah. What are you, two yeah. strokes? Yeah, he's been lying about his health. Anthony's been lying about his health. Bobbity Salisbury is lying to her about both of those men's health. And that is the best name, though. Uh, Bobbity Salisbury? Bobbity? Like every time someone calls him Bobbity, I'm like, Bobbity. <sighs> such a lovely name. I just... It is. It's such a great name. And he looks like a Bobbity. The person they cast to play Salisbury. Looks like a Bobbity. He looks like a Bobbity. They did Bobbity! a great job. Bobbity! <laughs> And then she calls them in and dresses them down. And the, the tutor saying, uh, she's like, why would I be able to say these things to these men who are more educated than me? And he's like, because they're men of their upper class and they're British. The thing they want most in life is a dressing down from nanny. And I lost it laughing. I laughed for, I had to pause the show. I laughed for so long. <laughs> Basically, they're just looking for a woman to tell them what's what. Yeah, I mean, you know. They've been naughty and they need to know it. Um, the one thing I really enjoyed is how immersive the show really is. And I think they do a really great, great job of setting this tone and this feel and sucking you into these like vast landscapes and just opulent settings and the set dressing in this is just fu uh, fucking unreal. Yeah, I don't know what I've obviously never been to Buckingham Palace, but I believe but no, this is Buckingham I mean, Palace. Yeah, like obviously <laughs> we've been to Buckingham Palace because we've seen the crown so many times. Obviously. Like, like I know I, my way around. I can tell you right now I'm an expert in royal protocol. Yeah, so am I. Yeah. And I can like I could navigate myself around Buckingham Palace just because yeah. I've seen the show so many times it's i'm fun. not gonna tell you i do it the right way but i am telling you that i know <laughs> how to do it i just would yeah it we're gonna we're gonna break it <laughs> it's like i i also feel like i'm now an expert in the way that government politics work in england should we just roll up to parliamentary and just tell them what's what uh, i think we that should just roll up to 10 downing street and be like listen, mr street. johnson be like hey Matt, listen 
Listen. All right, Downing Street. I've watched The Crown. I know how this all goes. <laughs> or like, I know someone, exactly how Parliament works. Let me whenever someone it. mentions anything about the Suez Canal, I'm like, I saw that on The Crown. I know what happened. so like when the ever given was stuck in the suez canal i was like now's my time this is what we've trained for let me tell you something about the suez Suez canal (laughs) and i did a complete reenactment of prince philip trying to tell her how driving chips down the canal works with a gravy boat and a saucer what are you doing those are my tankers matt smith a revelation I love Matt Smith. He's, well, I, I think it's probably because he's both our doctor. He is. He's our doctor. So uh, that's entirely why I was like, okay. And by like episode six, I was like, he's now Prince Philip, not the doctor playing Prince Philip. No, because for the, for the first like six episodes, I was like, why is the doctor hanging out with the queen so much? <laughs> <laughs> Who is this guy? Oh, the doctor finds himself at a ceremony with the King of England denouncing his Greek and Denmark citizenship. What's happening? Wait, the doctor's Greek? Yes, 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 indeed. Yeah, so uh, it would have been nice if at some point in the first two seasons we had seen Prince Philip go anywhere near a police box, but we didn't, and it was sad. So Matt Smith apparently got paid more than claire foy did he did because he's he's the doctor she played the queen you guys like that's that's the queen she plays queen elizabeth ii that's a huge deal that um the man who's playing prince philip got paid more than the woman playing the queen because of a role he had previously played as if the rest of her career because it is sort of like if you're going to compare careers to get a get but she has the most screen time the most number of lines, the most mm-hmm. body work to do. It's called the queen. <laughs> it's not called. <laughs> it's called the crown. It's not. Yeah. What are you talking about? It's not called the other crown next to the crown. <laughs> <laughs> it's not called the little tiny crown with the leopard print uh, mantle. He's her consort. Yeah, it's not called the consort. It's not called the consort. No. It, no. No. Mm-mm. And I mean, <laughs> he does get to play HRH, which is nice. But I, yeah, I was, I mean, I guess it's, and I like that Matt Smith and Claire Foy didn't know. That's nice that they didn't know that, that, so Claire Foy, the whole time she was working, didn't know until after she was done making the show that her co-star made more than her. But that also means that Matt Smith didn't know and then accept that. So that, that doesn't speak poorly of him necessarily, but the producers purportedly uh fixed this problem in time for olivia coleman to take on the role in season three but like if you got away with not paying olivia coleman as much as uh was it tobias mckenzie like i just <laughs> you're outlander. never gonna get away with that of, oh, outlander. of, of outlander fame yeah of you're not outlander <laughs> I don't know. Did you hear me? I said of Outlander. Hey, was he an Outlander? Yes, he was. He was an Outlander. <laughs> I just feel like you're never going to get away with paying Olivia Coleman less than anyone ever. So, like, I guess convenient for you that you figured it out the day before Olivia Coleman takes that role. And then you're like, well, we'll pay the queen, you know, as much. Like, who doesn't pay their lead 
the most in a show like like that that feels like a natural thing to do um netflix is the crown (laughs) um literally everyone so i just (laughs) that seems to me like a problematic practice and i feel like if a woman has the leading role then guess what the leading role is still the most highly paid role and a woman is the most highly paid on the show and get over it but what if they what if they hadn't gotten matt smith though I don't know. Who do you think would have played Prince Philip if it wasn't Matt Smith? Uh, The list could go on forever. Okay, but what if it was David Tennant? You can't can't do that. You can't make genres like that. (laughs) You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't. I already have one doctor. I can't. You can't throw another doctor into the mix. (laughs) We can only be one at a time. Except the wartime doctor, but still that was confusing. It was confusing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm glad that they fixed that problem that I'm sad for Claire Foy, although she's gotten more work since then and all of her work has been incredible. But yeah, she's amazing. Claire Foy was incredible. The things she does with her face. Yes. She communicated so many things simply through her face and so much subtext through her facial expressions. Uh, She's brilliant. She did a great job. So I feel like she should have gotten paid more, but you know, whatever. Next time next time (laughs) (laughs) and seeing as we're going into or season five of the crown coming up here well she's gonna reprise her role for season six please (laughs) season eight claire foy in old makeup yes (laughs) i'm for it do it the the subtext that's always going on in all of those scenes for like or just is for somebody to have so much control over their facial gestures and to be able to create a mood the way she does is quite fantastic. And this, I think this is her like first major, major, major role. And she just commanded the screen. She did an incredible job. And she did. I want to talk about a moment in, I believe it was the end of the episode Hyde Park Corner. Okay. So after King George VI has died... Mm-hmm. and she is the queen queen elizabeth ii is walking out of buckingham palace and she encounters queen mary in the hallway and queen mary does a full curtsy to her and like then looks up at her through her veil and i had a very woman in black moment and i just wanted to know if anyone else thought that suddenly they'd been transported into a horror movie yeah, I think a little bit. It's I, I think it's supposed to feel like that too. It's supposed to be a scary moment for her. Yeah. I mean, this is her whole life is been gearing up. I mean, since the abdication anyway, her whole life has been gearing up to this moment. And she thought she'd have a lot longer of being a young person before she had to then be the queen. Yeah, I mean, her and Philip, I think both thought they would have like a life in Malta doing like Malta things navy things or multi things multi meal <laughs> Malta. Uh, <laughs> i don't think multi meal came from Malta. <laughs> maybe it did maybe it did uh, uh for all your mediterranean and or dry cereal needs <laughs> <laughs> oh malta we're so sorry you have a long and illustrious history of being the first step towards european invasion from the mediterranean 
But serious role is a, a very, stepping stone. But for cereal. <laughs> for, for cereal. For cereal. Just for cereal. For just a moment. Let's just be through cereal. We're very cereal about this. <laughs> it's a very cereal moment. Oh. Oh, no. So. Now we're going to get a call from Malta. Oh, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Excuse I take me, back this the is Malta. Joke. I'm going to get a cease and desist from the entire island of Malta. Maybe. What if, joke, we, what if we what if we got a cnd from a, really i would probably hang that up still what if we got a cnd from the royal family though oh my god we'd be a little bit excited we'd be, right uh, we'd be happy on palace stationery <laughs> you like by royal decree it came by royal decree <laughs> i'd be like look it's this buckingham palace on it it's got the little red guy on it i just i had to go get a frame I feel like, can I talk about like, you for just a little bit longer? Because I need to say that I got like, this. And like, who listened? Who listened? What'd you think? What'd you think? Did you, you laugh a little? Yeah. Yeah, you laughed a little. Are you a little mad because you laughed a little? <laughs> <laughs> Does that make you a little bit mad? I think they have a bigger, like... They have other shit to be mad about. Fish to fry right now. I mean, they're Honestly. really upset about the, the prince on netflix um <laughs> uh, uh which yeah. i've seen and uh highly recommend if you are into satire and spoofs about the royal family yeah there's nothing they like more than being satirized i say sarcastically because <laughs> i'm pretty sure they hate that yeah i'm that's <laughs> You know, it'd be great is if the letter that says cease and desist was signed by the queen herself. I can't wait! <laughs> but she won't because obviously her secretary will sign it. But mm, with little sad hands. Mm. Yeah, it'll be a very sad time. But that's okay. That's better than getting a C&D from the White House. Oh, totally. You have to try really hard wanting to get one of those now these days. Before it was I easier. Feel, right? <laughs> like a year ago, it was way easier. Easier. <laughs> A year ago, all you have to do is be like, Trump sucks, C&D. Please stop talking about President Trump. Pretty much. But we have constitutional protections against those assholes, so it doesn't matter. Government, please don't listen to judges by our <laughs> podcast. We're really sweet girls, I promise. We can say what we want, though. <laughs> so, okay, I want to move on to my, my final question of seasons one and two of the crown for you. shoot my final question is which episode from seasons one and two of the crown are your favorite and why oh this is hard um that is a good question um damn right it is <laughs> i liked getting a look into before queen elizabeth ii reign so with her father and those brief moments in her childhood. I wish they would have done a little bit more through World War II. I would have loved to have seen Queen Elizabeth II really stand on her own and be the mechanic that we all know she is. Yes. That's the mechanic. And really war. see her at work. And and putting herself into the war effort. I think there's yeah. something I I feel like in World War One times in Downton Abbey, they talk about like even the king did his part and so there's like a whole discussion of like even the king's fighting why wouldn't i so i would have liked i mean that's definitely one thing i liked seeing and would have liked to have seen more of 
Okay. Okay. So more of actual England during World War II, mm-hmm. the wartime. Yeah. Okay. That's, I, it is interesting that most of the dramas I watch that follow anything in British history, like end before World War II or begin after World War II, but there's not a lot of them that I watch that are during World War II. Not a lot of portrayals like the, and they're, or they're peripheral, like Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, where it's during World War II, but the kids go to the country. So you don't really see any depictions of the Battle of Britain. Yeah. Or and the Battle over London or any of those. And, and the show definitely picks up like right after that, like World War II ended. And it was yeah. definitely a new time. And so much had changed because of the war. Right. So we're talking about when Elizabeth and Philip get married. Mm hmm. And that's when we really start. And then we do some flashing back to pre-war or during the war, mm. but not a lot during the war that you see any of the wartime things, except for season two, episode seven, where you see the Marburg papers get rediscovered or get hidden. Yes. And then that gives you context for them being rediscovered. Mm-hmm. And the the revelation for the queen of just how deep King Edward's deception of the government and uh, interactions with the Nazis, the Nazis. was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, I think that episode was one of my favorites when I first watched. I would agree. But I don't rewatch it that often because Nazis are hard. So mm-hmm. I, I don't generally rewatch it that often, but the moment when she's talking to Tommy Lassels and everyone's basically trying to be as gentle as possible and being giving her as little information as needed to get her except Tommy Lassels well like until they're they need to like pull out the big guns right everyone like gives her just feeds her a little bit like maybe now she won't let him back in the maybe now she won't do this thing she's doing but she was like really determined to be kind to her uncle which I thought was reasonable and also led to this sort of way of being where they were like okay we have to keep upping the ante and tell her more and more and more until Tommy Lassos was like okay let me tell you the all of it because apparently you're not going to be deterred until I tell you just exactly what happens yeah just as low as he had gone and just how far it had gotten and um both the the mentioning of Wallace Simpson's interactions with the ambassador and Edward's continued interactions and betrayal of England to the Nazis on more than one occasion, betrayal of the allies really uh, on more than one occasion. I think it was galling to me that France allowed him to live there. It's obvious that the French government didn't know or was doing the English government a favor because the fact that- I don't think they, the the papers were hidden, they didn't, I don't think they knew. Yeah, perhaps they didn't know the, the, the extent of it, like the things that Tommy Lassels had said, because I can't imagine the French government being like, yeah, he can stay here after basically causing the fall of Paris. Yeah. And the surrender of France to the Nazis. That and the the line that they mentioned that was really the, the serious line, which was that Britain was ready for peace, that continued bombardment of the British would make them surrender and that they were almost like ready to call it quits. Um, that's unconscionable so mm-hmm. that's why i don't tie the windsor knot in my ties anymore now i tie good reason a bunch of different ones but not that one even though it's a really nice looking tie knot which is just like just a, a shame it's a, a shame. politician's knot mm-hmm. and we can call it like whatever but 
there's a I've been tied. Oh, what's the one I've been tying lately? I think it's like the I don't know what it's called, but it loops twice around so that you get to see like a two layers of the wrap before you tuck under. Trinity? Mm-mm. I do love the Trinity. I think it's the Aldridge, but it just basically goes, or it might be the Albert tie. I don't know. It goes around twice. So you have like, you have loop one and then loop two. So you can see a little bit of loop one underneath. Mm-hmm. And then you tuck underneath and it's not a slip knot the same way others are. So it's harder to untie, but it looks gorgeous. So I love it. I saw, I think I saw someone in, I feel like Downton Abbey, someone tied that on their tie. And I was like, I want my tie like that. So does that bring us to the end? Yeah, I think we just need to say the end the things. Address. Yeah. Well, that is our time for I Watch A Lot Of. Thanks for listening. As always, please like, subscribe, do all the things you like when you like something. Yeah, please uh, rate, review, subscribe. Also follow us on Instagram at I Watch A Lot Of Podcast, our aptly named handle. And also you can check us on our website, I Watch I A Lot Of. Dot com. I watch a lot of dot com. That's what if I you said. Put, yeah, if you put I watch a lot of dot com, guess what you're going to get? I said of. There was an Go of. Daddy. There was an Would of. you like to register this domain? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I would. <laughs> also, if you write us a review, we'll read them, but please make it nice because otherwise we'll hit you. Yes, and if you you could also like ask us questions because we like answering questions. Oh yeah, you can hit us so up. So if on you our, need advice, we'll give advice too. Oh yes, Just very emails. not qualified advice. Yeah, email us and we'll give you unqualified Ooh. information. It'll be future fun. future segment unqualified advice. Yes, like if you need a brownie recipe or. Oh, I'm life, so qualified like, to give you a brownie oh, recipe. Yeah. Oh my god. Like a life lesson. <laughs> you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah, just no legal advice or tax advice or medical advice or any sort of advice that we can be uh, held legally responsible or culpable for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But definitely but let us really know. Fun. But yeah, call, like let us know. Right let us know. Well. Let us know what you're watching a lot of. And we'll mm-hmm. hear from you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.